know you guys appreciate being in Amelia. We loved having them there, there in Columbia, Tennessee is where we live. You know, on the way over, we were, uh, had a little scare. Had a friend of mine who has a little two-year-old, and that two-year-old was, was chewing on electrical cords. And my friend felt like he needed to ground his child. <laughs> and, and it was shocking to the family, but I mean, currently... The child is conducting itself properly, so we felt good about that. Uh, appreciate you being here. I'm going to be discussing an aspect of Christian apologetics, and apologetics is just the defense of the Christian faith. You read about that in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, where the Bible says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is within you with meekness and fear. And so when someone says, why should I believe in Jesus? Why should I believe the Bible's God's word? Why should I believe that there is a God? We need to, as Christians, be able to say the reason that we believe and know that those things are true. And I have been a Christian for many, many years, grew up in the Lord's church, and had never really come across this information that I'm going to present to you until probably about a year and a half ago. And I thought it was so fascinating that I felt like, uh, most people, maybe many people in the Lord's church just haven't seen this piece of evidence for Jesus Christ's accuracy in everything that he said and his ability, and something you already know, but his ability to predict what's going to happen in the future. And that's going to be very important to us as Christians, I believe. And so I'd like to walk you through a discussion of the fall of Jerusalem. Maybe you'll remember at the end of Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is there looking over the city of Jerusalem and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather you under my wings like a mother hen would gather her chicks, but you would not. And he mourns and laments over the fact that the city of Jerusalem, the city of David that was the place where the house of God had been constructed was not accepting the God that was there in its midst. And right after that, they're in Matthew chapter 24, his apostles come to him and they look at all the buildings and the temple and they show him and they say, Master, look at all of these amazing things. And then he gives them a statement that is shocking to them. And in that statement, when he tells them what's going to happen, he starts explaining that there's not going to be a single stone left on any of these buildings around the temple or the temple. Now, that's shocking to them, and so they want to know what's going on. And Jesus says, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, stop right there and ask yourself the question, what do you think the apostles would have thought about the statement that Jerusalem was going to be demolished and the temple and the buildings around the temple, there wasn't going to be a single stone left on it. There's a couple of good reasons why the apostles would not have believed that in, in some ways. Uh, reason number one, when you start looking at the prediction of the Messiah, of the increase 
of his government and peace. There will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order and establish it with judgment, justice from this time forward and forever. Where's the throne of David? In Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the city that David himself had taken. It was a Jebusite city. He had established it as the capital of Judea. Jerusalem was where the throne of David was recognized it was going to be and the Messiah was going to be sitting on the throne of David. So from a theological position, the apostles most likely thought that number one, the Messiah was going to sit on the throne of David and he was going to be there in Jerusalem and there's no possible way Jerusalem's going to be destroyed if the Messiah is going to come and sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem. But as you continue to look at the verses, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. That's very clear to understand. If you're reading right there in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, when the Messiah comes, the word of the Lord is going out from Jerusalem, out from Mount Zion. And so from a theological position, you just simply would not have thought that this was going to happen. And so when Jesus says to the apostles, hey, uh, just by the way, the whole city of Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and the temple is going to be destroyed to such a degree that there's not going to be two stones on top of each other. They were flabbergasted. And then the second aspect of this was how big the temple was. That was their, that was their initial interaction with Jesus. Hey, look at these stones. Now, I don't know if you have... have been to Jerusalem and seen where they suggest the temple was, etc. There's some things about that that's interesting, but these guys were uh, were kind of from Galilee. They were fishermen. Jerusalem was a big city to them, and when they went to look at the stones of the temple, they didn't see things like this very often. It's kind of like going to New York and standing on top of the rock there at the Rockefeller Center and looking over all of the city of New York or going there to the Empire State Building and looking out over the various boroughs and seeing how big the buildings are and how tall you are up. And when you look down, you can't even see a car. And if you do, it looks like a tiny ant. And you're not from a place like this and you don't go up 150 stories very often. And this is new to you. And so these Galilean fishermen are looking at this temple. And now let me, let me just show you the, the enormity of the temple itself. So as you're looking at this, now the outward face of the temple in its front wanted nothing. This is from Josephus, the Jewish writer there in about uh, 96 AD or so he wrote this. He said, wanted nothing that was likely to surprise either men's minds or their eyes for it was covered all over in plates of gold. Of its stones, some of them were 45 cubits long, five in height, and six in breadth. Now, you know, put that in feet, 68 feet long, seven and a half feet high, nine feet thick, 68 feet long. So you're looking at uh, 
what, 23 yards approximately? So let's just start right here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. Okay, from where I started to here is eighteen yards. Go another five, and that's how long a single stone was. And then that stone was nine feet thick, so I'm about six feet tall. So if you add another three feet to my wingspan here, you're talking nine feet thick, seven and a half feet high, and 68 feet long. These stones, now that's a conservative estimate at 160,000 pounds. Uh, one estimate is that one of these stones would have weighed 300,000 pounds. That's the weight of a blue whale. No, that's the weight of, yeah, a blue whale. A blue whale, the, the heaviest animal ever to have existed, the biggest specimen of a blue whale ever, weighs approximately 300,000 pounds. And that's one rock in the base of the temple. And they were stacked on top of each other. In fact, many people don't even understand how these stones could have even gotten there. And so the, the apostles are looking at this temple and Jesus says, oh, number one, uh, you know, theologically, from a theological point of view, uh, this is all going to be destroyed. And then number two, physically, those stones that weigh 160,000 pounds apiece that are covered in gold, they're not going to be there either. Now, you know, that would have been shocking to them. And so the next question that you would ask if you were looking at a building with stones that weighed 160,000 pounds and that were over 60 feet long and they weren't going to be on top of each other at all, not one, not, not a pair of them, when is this going to happen? That's the next question. Uh, as you looked at that, there was a third reason really actually that this would have been uh, very unbelievable to the apostles. And that was because the idea that, number one, those stones were going to be removed at all was, was mind-numbing to them. But number two, the fact that anybody would even be able to get up to it, to do anything to it, the Jews felt like Jerusalem was the defensive capital of the world and could not be assailed. They just did not feel like there was any possible way anybody was going to take Jerusalem. And there's good reason for that. Uh, this is from... Uh, Tacitus. And here's what Tacitus says. Tacitus was a Roman historian that just wrote about all kinds of stuff, but he wrote about Jerusalem because there was a big war with the Jews in AD 60, 66 and following up to 70. But here's why he wrote about Jerusalem, because it was just such a fascinatingly uh, defended and perfectly arranged city that it was just so hard to get to. And so here's what he writes. The Roman historian, struck by the city's defenses, he noted that the commanding situation of the city had been strengthened by enormous works, which would have been a thorough defense from level ground. He went on to comment that two hills of great height were fenced in by walls, and within were other walls surrounding the place and rising to a conspicuous height. In view of Jerusalem's excellent military advantage. Even the Romans said, you know, we don't really know how we would ever take this. It's way up on a hill. And not only that, the walls are humongous. And not only that, the way it's built, 
you can defend it from every place. You just can't really take Jerusalem. So Jesus says, okay, the, the entire city of Jerusalem may be wiped out. And for your information, apostles, not two stones of the temple are going to be on, each other, on top of each other when it happens. They're looking at three good reasons why that should not be the case. Number one, theologically, they thought the Messiah was going to reign on the throne of David out of Jerusalem. Number two, the enormity of the actual buildings. And number three, the defensive position of Jerusalem just looked like, no, it's not happening. But then Jesus starts telling them, okay, here is what's going to happen before all of these things occur. Before Jerusalem is destroyed, you're going to hear about false Christ. Now, if you read Matthew chapter 24, you'll go through this, and I'm going to take you through 24. And lots of people try to pin Matthew 24 on end of times type things. Like when Jesus comes a second time. Okay, when you go through this this morning, you're going to see that that has nothing whatsoever to do with the bulk of Matthew 24. Jesus is predicting the destruction of Jerusalem that he just told the apostles was going to happen. And he says, now, here's when this is going to happen. What you're going to see occur before the destruction of Jerusalem is that false Christ are going to appear. And so we just start looking historically at what's going on from the period of 30 A.D. to 70 A.D. It's a 40-year period. What happens in that time? Is it true that there were lots of people that claimed to be the Christ that were not? Maybe you'll recall there. Jesus says, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. Well, when you start looking historically, uh, this is Josephus. Josephus was not a Christian at all. He did not write to add credibility to Christianity or to the Bible. He was just a Jew who actually was a commander during the Jewish wars against Rome. Um, quick story about Josephus. Josephus is a commander. All of his guys get stuck in this big pit and they decide they're going to commit mass suicide. So one will kill the other, one will kill the other. There were about 33 of them left as I understood. Somehow when the Roman general comes to get all of his men out, every one of them is dead except Josephus. He decided he wasn't going to kill himself and he comes up out of that pit, the last one of his group that all killed themselves and he said to the guy who pulled him up out of the pit, hey, I've had a vision and you're going to be the emperor of Rome. Well, it just so happened that guy who was the general at the time became the emperor of Rome and so he, the emperor of Rome, and so he put Josephus on the Roman uh, you know, they started paying him to write the history of the Jews for Rome. And so we won't go into all of that, but needless to say, he was, he was a Jew. He was not a Christian. All he's doing is writing history for the Roman government in about 96 AD. And he's talking about this guy named Thutis who persuaded a great many people to follow him. He told them he was a prophet, that he would, by his own command, divide the river and afford them easy passage over it. And many were deluded by his word. So you got this guy by the name of Thutis. And then he says there were also another body of wicked men. They were such men as deceived and deluded the people under the pretense of divine inspiration. 
as you continue, Origen, who lived from A.D. 185 to 253, wrote in his book Contracelsium, and after the times of Jesus, Docetius the Samaritan also wished to persuade the Samaritans that he was the Christ predicted by Moses, and he appears to have gained some to his views. You have several people that were coming saying, I'm the Christ. Now Jesus had predicted, hey, this is going to happen. Don't believe them. And then as he then continues to tell them what's going to happen, he says, okay, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Now, when I was a kid, I read that and I was like, of course, there's always wars and rumors of wars. I mean, uh, right now, if I were to say, are there some wars going on? Yeah. And so as a kid, I thought that is not... uh, that's not prophetic at all. You can just throw that statement out and, and there always is going to be somebody fighting somebody. And so what's the import of this statement? That's what I thought as a kid. And it, like I said, it wasn't until probably a year and a half ago when I was reading a book on some of these fascinating first century records of this stuff. I, I want to show you something that I've never seen before. This was, this was so interesting to me. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you aren't troubled. Okay, of course, there's always some wars and stuff going on. Uh, Rome was the warringest group of people basically in the history of the world. They felt like that was their job professionally. Hey, guess what we do? We go around and we take... Uh, other territories, and then we get them going into ours. We bestow the Pax Romana on them. We give them the peace of Rome, and we build roads and stuff for them, and they pay us taxes, and we, you know, we war for a living. Okay, now, even though Rome was the warringest bunch of people, basically, you've ever seen, I want you to listen to what Tacitus says. He wrote of the months leading up to A.D. 70, And here's what he said, I'm entering on the history of a period rich in disasters, frightful in its wars, torn by civil strife and even in peace, full of horrors. Four emperors perished by the sword. There were three civil wars. There were more with foreign enemies. And there were often wars that had both characters at once. He said, we Romans basically, we war people all the time. We fight people all the time. But this period of time is the warringest, most uh, troubled period that basically we Romans have ever seen. We had three civil wars. We had more wars with people that were outside. Some of them were civil wars and wars with people outside. We had four emperors that died, and this time was crazy with wars. Now, there again, this is all real easy to look back on and see as a matter of fact. Tacitus is not a Christian. Tacitus, what you'll find out later, doesn't like Christians at all. He's not trying to help Christianity. He's not trying to verify anything that's in the Bible. All Tacitus is doing is writing about what was happening between A.D. 30 and A.D. 70. And he said, it was plagued by more strife and war than basically we Romans had seen in hundreds and hundreds of years, if ever. Okay, so the the real question is just, okay, between 30 and 70, were there lots of wars going on? Worldwide, that even the secular sources at the time recognized as tumultuous and extreme. Yeah, that was happening. Now, you look then in Matthew chapter 24, verse 7. Jesus says, 
and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. Now, here's what is interesting to me about all this. There are only about five, five to eight, and only five good resources that write about first century Judea and the Roman area and interaction that had anything to do with it. So what I'm telling you is there are a few secular sources that mention and write about this period of time in history. There aren't that many. I mean, you can read them all. I have. You can get them in the little Penguin Classics. You can get Tacitus, the Annals of Tacitus. It's about uh, 150 pages in a Penguin Classic. Read every bit of it. Fascinating stuff. Uh, There's not much to it. You can read virtually all the first century writings on this period of time that have to do with this. What's interesting is the scant material that we've got documents what Jesus said exactly. So right here, this is Tacitus again. Like I said, not a, not a, a friend of Christianity in any sense. This year witnessed many prodigies, houses flattened by repeated earthquakes. Further portents were seen in shortages of corn, resulting in famine. In this year, war broke out between Armenians and Iberians and seriously disturbed relations. Okay, what do you got right here? Tacitus says we've got earthquakes and we've got famines. What did Jesus say? Famines, earthquakes, and pestilences. All right, that's Tacitus. Here is another statement between AD 65 and 66. Heaven too marked this crime-stained year with tempest and pestilence. Campania was ravaged by a hurricane, hurricane which destroyed houses, orchards, and crops. At Rome, a plague devastated the entire population. Okay, so Jesus says there's going to be famines and pestilences, and there is going to be earth, there are going to be earthquakes all over the place. As you start looking, a series of droughts caused a scarcity of grain. Suetonius was another first century writer, one of the few. Whereas a famine did oppress them at the time, and many people died, a great famine throughout all of the world. Agabus predicted that in Acts chapter 11, and that happened. And so, oh, this is interesting. Seneca, the younger, this tremor was on the 5th of February. Rarely do you get something that accurate, tell you what day it was. In the consulship of Regulus and Virginius, and it inflicted devastation on Campania. For part of the town of Herculaneum, 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 two fell down, and even the structures that remain are unstable. An earthquake demolished a large part of Pompeii. Okay, Jesus says there's going to be earthquakes, famines, pestilences. The very few first century writings that you have document exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. Exactly. Okay, so as you go through that, next statement, persecution of the saints. Were the saints persecuted between the time that Jesus ascended back to heaven and the destruction of Jerusalem where they persecuted in a very serious manner from several different arenas. Absolutely. Number one, it started with the Jews. You remember when Herod found out that it pleased the Jews that he had killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. He then captured Peter. There at the very beginning of the ministry of the apostles, they were taken into the Jewish leaders meeting and they were told not to preach about Jesus and they were beaten for their testimony to Christ and in that amazing testimony to uh, to Christian 
courage. They come out of that meeting after they've been beaten. And you remember what the text says? That they rejoiced, that they were counted worthy to suffer abuse for the testimony of Jesus. Is that how we view uh, trouble when it comes our way because of our Christianity? Do we rejoice that we are counted worthy that people would say bad things about us because we stood up for something that was right? Do we rejoice when something happens that would be perceived as negative by many people because of our Christianity? Well, the, the early Christians did. And that is definitely something. But anyway, that, that you go into that and you see, okay, uh, that was something that was happening among the Jews and then that continued in the Jewish nation, but also spread various different areas. Acts 5.18, called the apostles, beat them. Acts 7, martyrdom of Stephen. Acts 12, death of James, the deaths of the apostles. Look at this last one, general Christian persecution. Suetonius writes, punishments were also inflicted on the Christians, a sect professing a new and mischievous religious belief. This is Tacitus. Uh, Rome burned. Most everybody believes Nero did it on purpose because he wanted to rebuild Rome. So he sent his servants out and set fire to, I think that there were 11 districts at the time. I think he burned seven of them. So basically burned about 65, 70% of the entire city of Rome. But then word spread that, hey, we think Nero, our emperor, just burned our city down. And so he didn't want people to think that he did. And he says, no, I didn't. It was those Christians. And so a serious persecution of Christians starts after the fire of Rome because Nero is looking for somebody to, to blame for what he probably did himself. And here's what starts happening. Nero starts collecting Christians, gathering them up and doing terrible things to them, putting them in the gladiatorial arenas, putting them in animal skins and putting wild dogs, packs of wild dogs on them and things of that nature. Probably his most nefarious instance of torture was that he would take these Christians and literally dip them in wax. And so they would be alive. They would be covered in wax. And then he would put them on a cross, crucify them in his gardens and set them on fire. And they would be the torches that would light the gardens of Nero. And so you read Tacitus' statement of this. And he says that Nero inflicted the most exquisite tortures on the class hated for their abominations. Isn't that interesting? That Jesus said, hey, the world hates, hated me. It's going to hate you. You know, in, in the United States, we have labored under the, uh, the system where for many years, I think Christianity has been appreciated from the, the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. And I think we're now starting to be in a situation where it's not anymore. That if you stand up and affirm the teachings of Jesus on any number of subjects like the the purity of a marriage between one man and one woman, the teachings of what a person should have to believe and do and know to become a Christian, the teachings about Jesus in any number of ways that there is an eternal hell, that there is a singular path to God. If you start to teach those types of things now in our culture, 
It is not received like it was 30, 40, 50 years ago. And I think you know that. And it doesn't matter how you present the idea. Many times you are looked at as being hate-filled or bigoted or you are against people just for saying this is what the Bible says. Now, we're starting to feel a little bit of that, but to me it's kind of like the, the Hebrews writer said, you haven't resisted blood yet. I mean, yeah, it, we might not have as loud of a voice in the public sector, et cetera, as people used to have, and Christianity might not be as accepted and as welcomed in places as it used to be, but, but you had not been beaten for it. These first century Christians were, their, their sole charge Here's what they would ask them. Are you a Christian? Yes. Okay, fine. You are now going to be tortured for no other reason than you just said you were a Christian. And that's it. And that's why I think Revelation chapter 2 verse 10 in the revelation that Jesus receives and that John gets there, you see that be faithful to death, then I will give you a crown of life. These Christians were, were going through this kind of thing. But as you look at that, is this exactly what Jesus predicted was going to happen? That's the question we're asking. So yes, so that's exactly what Jesus predicted was going to happen. Now this one, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, look there in Luke chapter 21, verse 20. Uh, in Matthew chapter 24, it says, when you see the abomination of desolation. In Luke, it says, the city of Jerusalem surrounded by armies at the exact same place where Matthew says abomination of desolation. So what's going on here is, Jesus says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near, then let those in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, this one was the one that I just, I, you, you almost cannot believe it even plays out like it does. But as you look at the, at the historical writings, here's what you got. Josephus writes, uh, Cestius, you, you don't hear much about Cestius. If I were to say, what Roman general are, are you familiar with? Cestius is not one of them. And uh, I was not one of them for me. I, I never had heard of Cestius, and there's a good reason you have never heard of Cestius as far as a Roman general goes. This reason right here. You're going to find out why Cestius never made the headlines. Okay, Rome had been having all kinds of trouble with Jerusalem and the Jews for a long time. And Cestius is the general of the main Roman army, basically the big Roman army. And he has the opportunity to finish the Jewish conflict off, to just, just quell it, just put it down. And so here's what Josephus says. Cestius, observing that the disturbances that were begun among the Jews afforded him a proper opportunity to attack them, took his whole army along with him, put the Jews to flight, and pursued them to Jerusalem. The Romans were tired of the Jews. The Jews have been causing all kinds of trouble. Cestius sees that they're fomenting this stuff and they're causing all kinds of trouble, and this is my excuse. So I can now go and finish the Jews off. So he gets his whole army and chases the main group of Jewish fighters back to Jerusalem. Okay? Interesting. And then this happened. It happened that Cestius was not conscious either how the besieged despaired of success or how courageous the people were for him. 
And so he recalled his soldiers from the place and by despairing of any expectation of taking it without having received any disgrace, he retired from the city without any reason in the world. Now Josephus is mad about this. The reason Josephus is mad about this is because the war could have ended right there and Jerusalem would not have been destroyed and things would have been very different. And Josephus wanted the conflict to stop right here. But it didn't. So Cestius comes to Jerusalem, surrounds the city. Now, there again, this is not a, a New Testament document at all. Josephus is not a friend of, of New Testament Christianity. All he's writing about is the history of the Romans and the Jews. He says, Cestius came, circled the city of Jerusalem. It looked like he was going to take it. Everybody in the city would have led him because the Jews themselves were having trouble with all these bands of rebels and stuff. But Cestius didn't know that. Cestius didn't think he was going to be able to take Jerusalem. And so he surrounds the city. And then from a, from a military standpoint, Josephus says, and for no reason in the world, there's not a single reason. He's got the whole might of Rome behind him. Everything's going his way. And he just decides, no, going back to, going back to Rome. Now, think about that. What's the expense like the monetary expense of getting the entire Roman army to go from Rome to Jerusalem and to surround them. Generally speaking, one of the main reasons that the Romans pursued the, the end result of defeating a place was so that they could repay the expenses that it cost them to get there. So Cestius comes, surrounds the city of Jerusalem, could take it in a second if he wants, but for no reason in the world decides, no, not today, and takes all the Roman army back. Okay, so Jesus says, when you see the city of Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then what do you need to do? Get out of Jerusalem. Okay? Did anybody do that? Well, as you read, Eusebius says, but the people of the church in Jerusalem had been commanded by revelation, Matthew 24, vouchsafe to approve men there before the war to leave the city and to dwell in a certain town of Perea called Pella. And when those that believed in Christ had come there from Jerusalem, then as if the royal city of the Jews and the whole land of Judea were entirely destitute of holy men, the judgment of God at length overtook those who committed such outrages. He says, okay, when all the people that were warned to get out got out, then God judged Jerusalem. Uh, Epiphanius says, This sect of the Nazarenes is to be found in Berea near Colsyria in Decapolis near Pella, for that was its place of origin since all the disciples had settled in Pella after their remove from Jerusalem, Christ having told them to abandon Jerusalem and withdraw from it because of the seeds that it was about to undergo. Okay, one more. Josephus mentioned that after Cestius' retreat, many Jews swam away from the city as from a ship when it was going to sink. Cestius comes up, circles the city. It looks like he's going to take it for no reason in the world. He takes his whole army off and goes back to Rome. The people who were warned by Jesus to get out of Jerusalem when you see that, Thousands and thousands of them leave the city immediately.
And then what happens? Then the Roman army comes back again. And this time, when the Roman army comes back, there will be a great tribulation, the text says, as, as you read Matthew chapter 24. And he says, Jesus says, it's going to be something that nobody's ever seen the likes of the destruction and pain and torture and suffering that you're going to see. Titus, the general, brings the Roman army back, and this time it's very, very different. This time there is no moving back to Rome. This time they're going with a singular idea in mind. We're tired of the Jews. We're going to destroy Jerusalem. And that's exactly what happens. As you look at the devastation of what happened there in Rome, I mean in Jerusalem from this Roman army, you start reading. Upper rooms were full of women and children that were dying of famine. The children and the young men all swelled with famine, fell down dead. The multitude of carcasses that lay in heaps, one upon another. These are uh, statements from Josephus. The Roman soldiers, this is disgusting, out of wrath and hatred they bore the Jews, nailed those they caught one after one way and another after another way to crosses to make fun of them. If I understand it, sometimes they would crucify 2,000, 3,000 people a day on the outskirts of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, the rumor was, as you, and among many were whipped and then tormented with all sorts of tortures. Certain Jews coming out of the city had swallowed gold to try to keep it. And so the Romans thought that all of them had. And so when a Jew would come out of Rome to turn himself in or herself, the Romans would literally dissect them to try to find the gold that they had swallowed. As you start looking at what was going on, a final estimated number of those killed in a few months of the siege was 1.1 million with another 97,000 sold as prisoners as Jesus stated in Luke chapter 21, 24. You're talking about 1.1 million people dying in two months of some of the most horrible famine and, and violent deaths that you will read about in history. And that's exactly what Jesus predicted. Josephus says, Neither did any city ever suffer such miseries, nor did any age ever breed a generation more fruitful in wickedness than this from the beginning of the world. He said, we've never seen anything like it. He said, it was the worst torture and torment and death that any city has ever experienced in the history of the world. Now, as you look at that, accordingly, the multitude of those that therein perished exceeded all the destructions that either men or God ever brought upon the world. And so then you just start seeing the, the pieces line up. That exactly what Jesus said, they're going to be false Christ. Okay, they were. Christians are going to be persecuted. Okay, they were. City of Jerusalem is going to be surrounded by an army. When you see that, make sure you get out. City of Jerusalem was surrounded by the most powerful army in the world. And then they just left for no reason. The famines, the pestilence, the earthquakes, exactly like Jesus predicted. Now the temple. It's interesting to me that we talk about 
the temple that Herod built. It took 42 years to build that temple that Herod had there. Uh, but when I say we talk about it, if you were to go and say, I'd just like to see the temple that was there in Jerusalem during the time of Jesus. Okay, well, you can't. There, there's nothing of it left. Not a, not a single stone. As archaeologist Harold Mayer wrote, we do not have any remains of the Herodian temple itself because of the devastating Roman destruction in A.D. 70. You can't, you can't see any of it. There's, I think, one piece of one broken stone left of the temple. And that's what Jesus was talking about when he was telling his apostles. They said, Don't you, they said do you see the temple and the buildings surrounding it? And Jesus said, there's not going to be a stone left. You can't even look at the temple. H.T. Frank noted, strictly speaking, the temple proper is not a matter of archaeological consideration since only one stone from it and parts of another can be positively identified. You can't even find the stones of the Herodian temple from Jerusalem, A.D. 30. All right, so here's the point. Of all this. That was fascinating to me when I started reading that and started studying that and started realizing, okay, this is Jesus predicting what's going to happen to the city of Jerusalem and ultimately to the temple. This is not end time stuff. He talks about how pray that this doesn't happen in the winter, that your flight does not happen in the winter because those people who have little babies that they are nursing and caring for, it will be terrible for them and flee. It, he's talking about you know, if it was end time, what would it matter if Jesus comes again during the winter? Nothing. He was talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. But now as you look at that, here's the point. If Jesus says something's going to happen, it always happens. Exactly like he says. And you can mentally argue with it. The Jews did. You mean to tell me that the Jews are God's chosen people and somehow he's going to let these pagan Romans come in and destroy the most holy city of the Jewish nation and wipe out millions of God's people? No, I don't, I don't think a loving God would do that. Okay, listen to me. If Jesus says it, it happens. And so the rest of... Matthew chapter 24, starting about in verse 36 and following, when Jesus asked the, answers the second question. The first one was, when were all these things going to happen? The second question was, and what about your coming? And Jesus says, but of that day and that hour, no man knows. And what I say to you, I say to all Watch. He said, listen, I'm going to tell you exactly what's going to happen before the fall of Jerusalem. So much so that when it does happen, this is the action you're going to need to take to save your physical life. But when I come again, there are going to be no signs. There's going to be no predicting it. There's going to be nobody that can say, we've calculated it up from this code in the Bible and it's going to occur Jesus' point was, when I say something's going to happen, it always does. You're going to be able to look at the city of Jerusalem, and it's going to happen exactly like I say. Now, the second thing I'm going to tell you is, I'm coming again, and you don't know when that is. 
And so what you need to do is always be prepared for me to come back. And so the city of Jerusalem and the destruction of Jerusalem is a testament to the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back. And all those people who listened to Jesus and left the city of Jerusalem, they saved their lives. All those people who didn't were destroyed. All those people who have listened to what God has told them through the inspired New Testament that they need to do to be ready for the coming of Christ, they're going to be saved. All those people who haven't, they're not. What Jesus says is always right. Make sure you're on the right side of what Jesus says. That's the point. Sure appreciate you being here this morning. Thank you for your attendance and look forward to being with you for our worship hour.